Monty Hall. Nothing personal pick of the day. How do you like that, Coke, on a Monday to start like that? Three, two, six. Monty Hall. Nothing personal word of the day for Monday, August 31st. It's the trade deadline in Major League Baseball. Monty Hall, you may know him because he's been reincarnated as Wayne Brady, but they are the game show hosts for Let's Make a Deal. That's that crazy game show where you dress up as some sort of character and then you get chosen by the game show host and then you get to choose what's behind door number one or would you like what's behind door number two? And then you win like a bowl of rice and you say, would you like to trade that for what's behind door number four? And then you could win like a spoon or you could win a trip to Cancun. That's sort of what it is like in Major League Baseball when you're making deals. You want to make deals because you want to excite your fan base. You want to make deals because your owner wants you to get better and feels like standing still means you're not getting better. Not realizing that developing players actually means that you're getting better. Sometimes keeping your own players and developing them makes you better. Other times, if you're not improving, you're going backwards There are a lot of teams in baseball that don't want to do that. This is a strange deadline date. It's August 31st. This used to be the date on the calendar after which playoff rosters had to be set. So there would be things called August trade waiver deals. That would come after the actual MLB trade deadline, which used to be July 31st. And those would be trades only of players who had secured waivers, which means that They went unclaimed by any of the other 29 teams. But then MLB said, let's get more excitement around the trade deadline. People love it. We can do 12 hours of programming on MLB Network. We'll have everyone talking about it. We'll lead up into the day. We'll be live. We even may lead off SportsCenter, CBS, everywhere on HQ. Little did they know, of course, that there'd be NBA playoffs happening. NFL starting soon, NHL playoffs happening. But either way, MLB decided in this short season they were going to go August 31st as the only trade deadline. Well, most teams have played around 30 games. That's half the season. So that's the equivalent of July 1 in a six-month season. There's only one month to go of games. So that means this is the equivalent of August 31st in a regular season. But the big difference is that 26 teams are basically in the race. I guess we could be even more specific and say, in the National League, every team but the Pirates, I think, is within two and a half games of a playoff spot. The American League is a little more spread out. But remember, there's expanded playoffs. Eight teams per league. Two teams per division, plus two wild cards. That's how you get to eight then all eight teams will play a two out of three series before they even get to the divisional series, which will be three out of five. So you can be the best team in baseball like the Dodgers and still have to play a two out of three series against the eighth place team. So what's fascinating is how teams have approached this. I was pretty clear that uh, I did not think there would be a lot of trades I thought this deadline would have teams being much more careful. Why? Because wouldn't it make sense when you don't know what next year will bring? You don't know whether there'll be fans in the stands. 
You don't know what the recovery will be like from an economic standpoint for your sponsors, for your fan base. You really don't know what your revenue is going to be. Therefore, you want to have as small a payroll as possible. And in order to have a small payroll and win games, you have to have young players who outperform their contracts. That's the famous line that you'll hear every other day on Nothing Personal. The teams which win are teams who have the most players outperforming their contract. So if you've got a player making $30 million, let's just say Manny Machado on the Padres, there is no way for Manny Machado to outperform his contract. He could win the MVP, lead the league in home runs and steals, and he cannot outperform $30 million a year. He can play up to it, but he can't outperform it. But when you've got a young pitcher, say last year a Chris Paddock, who's making the minimum for San Diego and is pitching like a number two starter, now you're talking about the type of value needed when you're a middle-of-the-road payroll team or a low-payroll team in order to succeed. So on a deadline day where I thought keeping prospects would be the number one priority, it turns out that I grossly underestimated one factor in a trade deadline day room. A room is where the president and the GM and a bunch of scouts and a bunch of analytics guys that are all in a room, they have a whiteboard up and they're writing down different teams, different players, different acquisition targets. They have a list of which players they'd be willing to trade, what those players' salaries will be the following year and the following year, those that you have on your team. Then you've got a printout of every single player on every single team and what their service time is, what their salary is, when they're going to go into arbitration, when they're going to become free agents. We have a list of every player and every player agent. You keep this list with you. And what you ask the room to do is come up with dream scenarios of players you'd like to acquire in a win now. We were in a great position. Don't worry about later because our contracts are running out and we're not extended anyway. So let's focus on now. So you have all that going on in a deadline room. And then on top of that, you've got a direct line to the owner of the team. And I thought owners were going to be far more cautious. Here's where I was wrong. The allure of jewelry, the intoxicating feeling of making the playoffs and of making the World Series and of winning the World Series, the jealousy that 29 owners feel every November, you guys are going to find this to be interesting, if not insane. But there's an owner's meeting, MLB has four owner's meetings. And one meeting a year is in November. And in the November meeting, the start of the meeting, when all the teams are together, it's the joint meeting, which means it's not one person per club one executive per club. It's when every representative of the club, the what, however many owners, the co-owners, so like in Boston, it would be John Henry and Tom Werner. In Miami, it may be Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman. So they're in a room and the commissioner, it was Selig at first and then Rob, starts the November meeting by saying, before we start, I would like to acknowledge and congratulate Ted Lerner, and Mark Lerner on winning the 2019 World Series. You have been great stewards of the game in Washington, and congratulations. 
And then there is an applause. And the other owners basically, you have to go like this. Sometimes you stand up, like if it's an old owner, like if Mike Illich had ever won a World Series before he died, which he didn't, there would have been a standing ovation. We didn't get a standing ovation in 04. We got a uh, sort of one of these, like, we got that. If you're not watching this on YouTube, then you don't know what I did. I put my thumb to my nose and I twinkled my fingers and I made some sort of sound with my tongue that I couldn't possibly make again. But it was not a standing ovation. It was just sort of a, yeah. Yeah, whatever. So what I underestimated is how much owners love that. The feeling that you get that ovation, the feeling that you have one-upped your fellow owners. And now with expanded playoffs, you're in a position where you have a shot. So if you're San Diego, you haven't made the playoffs since 06, you have no choice but to go for it. So the role is today... The owner has made his feelings clear. The president of baseball operations or the general manager is trying to control the room, trying to manage expectations both above him and below him, trying to keep an eye out of, for money, and trying to make sure that the manager, when the manager has to manage a game tonight, has a team to manage. Why does that become important? Because if you trade out too many players from your team and the other players you receive do not report in time, and you can't get players from the minor leagues or from your alternate site in time, then you have to worry about tonight's game. And in a 162-game season, not as big an issue. In a 60-game season, it matters. So many people would ask, including Coca, when we were talking about the show pregame and thinking about what we talk about, curious about what role the manager has. And uh, a lot of managers, uh, some are different. Uh, but here's how it generally works. Managers will tell the GM or the president or the owner when they have a feeling that something's not working because they'll say, listen, I live with this team. I'm down in the clubhouse every day. I've been around them all season. It does not work. We don't have enough starting pitching. We need an extra bullpen arm. I feel as though I don't have a right-handed bat off the bench, which I need when we have to pinch hit. In the National League, that was a big issue. Now that there's the universal DH, not as big an issue. There's not as much double switching, if any, that goes on during these games. But generally, managers take whichever 25 players you give them, and they do the best they can. And the reason why managers do that, and you know I love you, Jack, if you're listening, and you too, Donnie, but what managers say is, I'm going to take the 25 guys you give me, and if we don't win, it's your fault. And if we do win, it's because of me. That's how managers are, and that's their ego, and that's okay. So as the deadline happens here over these next few hours, we're going to be watching closely to see which owners have decided that they had no choice. We now know Ron Fowler is one of them. Remember the Padres owner who said, if we don't win this season, heads are going to roll, starting with mine. He was talking about himself and we said on the air that, well, I think that was a nothing personal show, Coca. Right in the beginning, when we uh, started the show last October, last October 14th, 208 episodes ago, not including sit-downs and bonuses, et cetera, we said, is he going to fire himself? Why wouldn't he fire Preller, who's an absolutely incompetent GM who somehow has Ron Fowler wrapped around his finger? AJ Preller, the same GM, 
who in 2015 got Craig Kimbrell, Justin Upton, Will Myers, Will Middlebrooks, and then got rid of them all, rebuilt in 2016. Now, the fruits of this rebuild have happened. They've got Fernando Tatis Jr. They signed Eric Hosmer to a huge free agent deal. They've been trying to chase the Dodgers for seven years, if not 14. So A.J. Preller decided, I'm going to go all in. I've got the owner's approval. I'm going to trade for a DH first baseman named Mitch Moreland out of Boston. Boston's selling, by the way. I'm going to get rid of all my catchers and bring in new catchers because they're not hitting enough. But don't worry. I've got Larry Rothschild, the pitching coach, who will make it okay to bring in all new catchers with one month to go. All new catchers who have to learn an all new pitching staff with one month to go. Don't worry. It'll be fine. No, it won't. It is a huge mistake to bring in all new catchers with one month to go. Huge. We're going to trade for the best bullpen bullpen arm available, Trevor Rosenthal. Ironic that he's the best available, but the Royals are selling and they sold to San Diego. Then they said we need more pitching, which they do, and they traded for Mike Clevenger. Mike Clevenger has been traded to the San Diego Padres. Mike Clevenger, I had to wait to see that the Indians would not trade their starters. We waited, we've seen, and I was wrong. You know my wait to seize. When I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you. It's a prediction. When I'm right, I'm going to remind you and tell you. But we'll follow up on every single wait to see. The wait to see was that they wouldn't trade their starters because why? Why would you make your team trade a performing starting pitcher. So then Mike Clevenger goes out on a random Saturday night in Chicago. Oliver Perez, a journeyman lefty who's been on 49 teams in Major League Baseball, says, I am leaving if Mike Clevenger and Zach Plesak are on the big league team. So Cleveland sends him to the minors, calls back up Clevenger. Fascinating to me. Calls up Clevenger, has him pitch, and then trades him. Do you think that there was a clubhouse revolt going on in Cleveland? Let's remember last year when Trevor Bauer took the ball from Terry Francona, threw the ball into center field, and the Indians were then forced to trade Trevor Bauer. Their claim was they needed an outfield bat. They were bringing in Yassel Puig. Good luck to them. Didn't work. Here we are a year later. One year later, they traded Corey Kluber. Don't blame him. He was hurt. Not the ace that he was. One of the best pitchers. One of the seven best pitchers. ERA under three in the past three years. Seven pitchers have had an ERA under three since 2017. Corey Kluber is one of them. Not anymore. Hurt. Done with Texas. Another one of the seven. Yeah, Clayton Kershaw. True. Hunjun Ryu. True. Ooh. Mike Clevenger. Yes. Mike Clevenger. So they're forced to trade Clevenger because I guess the players went to Chris Antonetti, the president of baseball ops, or Mark Chernoff, the GM, and said, you know what? We don't want him. Leave Plesak at the alternate site. If you're going to bring up Clevenger, bring him up, showcase him, get him out. If I'm in the front office and I've got my players saying that to me, I say, listen, do me one small favor here. Shut up and play. 
And I don't mean that to be a take on shut up and dribble. I'm not telling him to be quiet about social matters. I'm not telling him to get off social media or to not take a stand politically or get people to vote. I'm saying you go play with the players who we put on the team. There's never been a team in history, no matter what you've heard, where 25 guys like 25 guys. Well, now it's 28. It doesn't exist. You don't like Mike Clevenger? No problem. You're going to like him every five days. That's something that Jeff Conine taught me, and I've tried to teach it ever since. There may be people you don't like, whether it be Hanley Ramirez or Pudge Rodriguez or Josh Beckett, whoever it may be. But every five days or four times a night at the plate or every time a ball is hitting that player's direction, you can learn to like that man. So the Indians forced into trading Clevenger and there's a bidding frenzy. Everybody wants him. When we needed to make a trade with the Marlins, we would always call A.J. Preller because he always had this trigger finger. He was always itching to do something because he felt the act of doing something is what made his team better. So Cleveland, knowing they had to move him, calls San Diego and makes a trade that is very interesting to me. They get back six pieces. One of them was the old catcher, an arbitration-eligible catcher named Hedges, who used to be the Padres catcher. Now they have two new catchers. They don't need a catcher. They got Castro and they got um, Nola. So I guess they were able to trade Hedges. They moved him to Cleveland. Okay. Another kid is Josh Naylor, one of the Marlins draft picks. We drafted Josh Naylor. He is a great hitter with no place to play in the field. He's a straight DH. He's not going to play outfield for Cleveland. And if he does, that's not a winning team. They got a young pitcher, a bullpen arm, swing arm named Cal Quantrill, the son of Paul Quantrill, by the way, great major league player. It's a pretty good haul that the Indians got. People are going to say the Indians won this trade, getting all these pieces from the Padres. And I will say the Indians did not win this trade no matter what, because you cannot win a trade that you are forced to make, period. But that's not my way to see. My wait to see today on deadline day is everyone is so excited that the Padres have done what they've done. Everyone thinks it's great. Well, here's the wait to see. And this one is a guarantee. The Padres will not make it out of the first round of the playoffs. They'll play in the two out of three. They're going to make the playoffs because if you look at that division in the NL West, Arizona has completely disappeared. The Rockies go up, they go down, they go sideways. It'll be Dodgers one. It'll be Padres two. They'll be in the playoffs. They'll have to play a wild card team who will be hot and they'll lose. More on the deadline. There may be bonus pod alert. We may do a pod once the deadline's done. We'll see if there's any other trades. All right, Coco, what else happened this weekend? You know what I want? I want to talk to Sam. Hello, Coca. That little sound you heard is from a movie called Half-Baked. It's when you get into my Instagram at David P. Sampson, get into my Twitter at David P. Sampson. You can DM. DMs are open and public on both sites. And I will see if I can answer any of your questions. Thank you. Thanks for, by the way, downloading and subscribing. It has been another record-breaking month as we end August, and that is because of you. 
the listeners, the viewers. You've subscribed to Nothing Personal with David Sampson. You've subscribed to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And by all appearances and numbers, analytic and otherwise, anecdotal and real, you telling your friends about Nothing Personal. So say so you want to talk to Sampson. This weekend was a big weekend in New York. What happened? No, I don't mean the Yankees getting swept on Friday and sweeping on Sunday. We'll get to that after a break, which will be after this segment. No. Big day because the Yankees are making a trade? No. Big weekend because the Mets are being sold. We've had a bunch of wait to seize since the show started about the Mets sales process. Nothing's official, so I'm not declaring victory on any of them. But we did find out that Steve Cohn, the current minority partner of the Mets, who currently owns 8% of the Mets, who had bid $2.6 billion, but wanted to take control now. But the Wilpons said, no, no. I want Jeff Wilpon running the team for five years while you give us $2 billion so we can sign players. He can still run the team and maybe we can win and then you can take over in five years. Steve Cohn said, go screw yourself. I'm not giving you $2.6 billion to let some other person make decisions. So Wilpon said, screw you, Steve. No, screw you, Fred. Yeah, screw you, Jeff. Deal fell apart. Maybe the Mets aren't for sale. Then the pandemic hit. Then real estate went to the crapper. And then the Mets were for sale again. But this time the Mets were for sale right now. No keeping the team for five years and letting Jeff Wilpon run it. They are for sale right now. A-Rod starts dating J-Lo. A-Rod and J-Lo get together and form A-Lo or J-Rod. And they say, we want to own a team. How about the Mets? They put a group together. They raise billions of dollars. It is a sure thing that A-Rod is getting the Mets. Rumor comes out that Jeff Wilpon does not want to sell the team to Steve Cohn. He only wants to sell it to A-Rod. And you heard it on Nothing Personal when I said that's the biggest crock of crap of all time. They will sell it to the highest bidder. They're only putting it out there publicly exactly the way I did when we sold the Marlins for our owner. We said, yeah, A-Rod's about to get this team. No, no, Jeter's going to get it. No, no, Bush is going to get it. No, no, Romney's going to get it. No, no, I would only sell it to Moss. It was all posturing. It was all BS. We were selling it to the highest bidder. Hard stop. But if you're Steve Cohn and you're on the inter-Google looking at the Twitter account, recording your tactics and saying, I want to own the Mets. I want to be the owner of the Mets. Oh my God, they're going to sell to A-Rod. I got out my bid by $100 million. What's $100 million? Hey, Jeff, I'll go up by $100 million. Wait a minute, Jeff, you're not doing the team? You're not in charge anymore? Thank God. Can I deal with Fred? No, Fred's not doing it either. You hired an investment bank and paid him $50 million to sell a team to me when you knew that I would pay way more than anyone else would pay and all you had to do was make up a number and I'd still go over that? That's sort of what's going on in Metland. So the question you asked me was, how does exclusivity work when trying to buy an MLB team? Because we read this week that Steve Cohn now has the exclusive right to buy the Mets. Let me explain how that works. When you've got four or five bidders trying to bid for a team, the majority of the bidders will say, listen, we don't want to be used. We don't want to be a, I'm blanking on the word, Coca, a loss leader, but that's not it. It's Prescvu. It's right here on the tip of my tongue. A stalking candidate, a um, stalking bovine. What's the expression? Uh, We don't want to be a 
A stalking horse. Could that be it, Coca? I don't think that's it, but it may be. A stalking horse is when you are bidding for something and you're being used. You're never going to win, but you're being used to exact a higher price from another bidder. So when you know that you want a team the way Steve Cohn wants a team, you are not going to in any way bid against yourself. So you want to make sure that you have the exclusive right to buy the team because you do not want anyone to be used as a stalking horse against you. So what happened was Steve Cohn knew that final bids for the Mets were due today, August 31st. He called up the investment bank leading the transaction and said, listen, I will guarantee a bid of X dollars, let's say two and a half billion dollars, but I will only bid that on August 31st if you grant me the exclusive because I'm not going to let you take my bid and run to A-Rod and let A-Rod find another person to give another hundred million to raise his bid a hundred million. He's already cobbling together. He's already cobbling together all of these people to be in his group. I'm not going to give you, give him time to further cobble. So why would you not want to grant an exclusive? If you're the Mets, you don't want to grant an exclusive because it can have a quashing impact on the other bidders much like happened this weekend. When A-Rod found out that Steve Cohn had the exclusive, A-Rod backed out and said, okay, we're done. We're giving up. Another bidder, Josh Harris and David Blitzer. They'd combined to form a team and they gave up. Could someone get rid of the frog, please? Somebody? Hello? It may be gone. Thank you. So the other bidders dropped out once the exclusivity happened, which is exactly what Steve Cohen wanted to have happen. Because now Steve Cohen has a window to buy the Mets. But what has not been reported and what is critical when you are a baseball team for sale, giving an exclusive window to one bidder, you have to give it a time period. And it's not been reported, but I'll bet you dollars to donuts that somewhere in that document, it says that Steve Cohn has the exclusive right to buy the Mets for a period of 45 days. After that, it gets open again. And the exclusivity is at a price. It's not just he's got the exclusive right to buy the Mets and he can now bid $275 million. You give the exclusivity when you have it in writing that the bid will be two point blank million dollars. Will Steve Cohn get all the way back to the two six that he originally bid? I say no. It's going to be a shade under that just so he can feel like he got a victory and the Wilpons will feel like that they lost something by not saying yes to Steve pre-pandemic. But Steve wants the team. Steve's getting the team. He's got a big checkbook. He's going to be the wealthiest owner in Major League Baseball. Does that mean he'll continue to sign free agents, have huge payrolls and everything's going to be dandy for the New York Metropolitans. That's a pretty big wait to see because the biggest question you should be asking yourself is not how much money Steve Cohn will put into the team, but who he will put in charge of the baseball operation because it won't be Brody Van Wagenen. And it better be someone who can stand up to Steve and make sure that Steve is protected from new owner-itis. 
Okay, when we come back, we have uh, a review. We're also going to talk about a tough weekend. And then we're going to talk a little Yankees. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. I, uh... I was going to go right into the review, but I want to mention that uh, this weekend there were three three people passed away of note. I mean, anyone who passes away is of note. I, I hate when people say that. I take it back. Don't say that someone passed away of note. Anyone who passes away is somebody's note. Three people died. Chadwick Bozeman, Black Panther, was 43 years old. He had colon cancer, didn't tell anyone about it. It was a complete shock. Couldn't believe it when I read it. He had completely hidden his disease. And then one day he was dead. I guess the downside of hiding a disease is that no one gets to say goodbye, but then no one feels sorry for you or treats you differently either. He will be missed. I don't recall a time when a network has shown a movie of an actor who passed away and done an homage to that actor but if there ever was a time, it was now, during the pandemic, during this time of social unrest, that Chadwick Bozeman would get that honor. He will be missed. Just today, John Thompson passed away. John Thompson, 74 years old, was the coach of Georgetown. He is responsible for making men out of boys, from Patrick Ewing to Alonzo Mourning to Dikembe Mutombo to Allen Iverson. I could go on if I could name any other of his players. He's someone who was so well-respected. I remember watching him thinking to myself, his presence is not just because of his size, but he was so eloquent. And I remember listening to his interviews thinking, wow, if I were able to play basketball, that's a coach I would want to play for. But I guess death comes in threes. Have you ever heard that expression, death come in threes? I don't know where I heard that, but I did. And there was a third death this weekend, and I want to talk for a minute about Cliff Robinson. Cliff Robinson is a uh, former player in the NBA, played for the Portland Trailblazers, among other teams, the Warriors. Second highest scoring player in University of Connecticut history behind Ray Allen. You may know Cliff Robinson because if you watched the last dance when Michael Jordan hit all those threes in the finals against the Trailblazers and he looked at the announcers and he shrugged his shoulders, the player who was guarding him running up the floor with him during the shrug was Cliff Robinson. 
Cliff Robinson was a phenomenal scorer, phenomenal defensive player. And when I got to Los Angeles to go on Survivor <clears throat> and I got a look at the other people in the cast who I'd be on the island with, there was Cliff Robinson. What was Cliff doing on Survivor? I thought it would be an all-athlete Survivor or all people involved in sports, but I didn't recognize anybody else. So I said, wow, they got an athlete. They got me. We're definitely going to be on the same tribe. Why wouldn't they put the two of us on the same tribe? Of course, we weren't. He was brawn. I was brains. Totally mislabeled, both of us, since he's got brains and brawn and beauty. And I can't figure out which of any of those three I have. I didn't get to speak to Cliff Robinson except pregame when you're not allowed to talk and we would only speak with our eyes. He knew who I was and I knew who he was. Once it ended, I made a mistake on Survivor and I regret it and I live with it. It's carpe diem. It sees the day. It's take advantage of opportunities when they come to you. And when I got voted off Survivor, I was so angry to be voted off first. I was so sad. I was so upset that I chose not to go on what they call the pre-merge trip. The pre-merge trip is everybody voted off before the merge goes on a trip because you're not allowed to go home. You go on a trip through Asia or wherever you are filming and you go for several weeks while the rest of Survivor plays out until a winner is chosen and then the whole cast flies home together. Cliff Robinson was voted out of Survivor after I was, but still before the merge. He went on that trip and I did not. And I would have had a chance to spend more time with him than I did. I spent time with him at the reunion and we ended up becoming fast friends. We had spoken before the reunion, which takes place almost a year after filming. Once you're off the island, you figure out who's, who's on your cast. You know all their names. You're in contact with each other. While the show's on the air, you're talking to each other. And I spent many a time emailing and talking to Cliff. People called him Uncle Spliffy. He invested in cannabis businesses. He loved marijuana use for some of his pains, some of his sicknesses, medicinally, of course. Well, medicinally and recreationally, but mostly medicinal and many times recreational. Cliff was just a guy who was, uh, he was a giant. And I was so sad when I saw that he had passed away. I had spoken to him, I don't know, six months earlier. He was sick. He had had a stroke, he had had tumors, and he was always positive. He had growth removed from his jawline, and he was just someone who had an outlook, the likes of which you always say you'll never have, and the answer is you don't know whether you'll have it until you're forced to have it, and God willing, you won't be forced to have it, but so many people are. And then he passed. Cliff, thank you for being you and for teaching me, as I said to you on Twitter. I don't know why I felt the need, but so many people do to say things on Twitter, Instagram, but I'm saying it to you now, Cliff, because I know you like the show. I'm saying you know and I know you're not a brain. You and I both know you're not a brawn, and you and I both know you're not a beauty. What we do know about you, Cliff, is that you had the combination of all three, that you were one of the most complete people I knew. It was an honor, Cliff. Rest in peace. Okay. Uh, I was in a, some kind of weird mood this weekend. Uh, Vince Vaughn, I'll watch any Vince Vaughn movie. It's a perfect movie that Cliff would have loved, by the way. Not that that was the segue, but Cliff would have loved it. I watched The Binge. It came out on Hulu. It stars Vince Vaughn, who plays a principal 
the binge is in a world, a future America. How did they get Morgan Freeman to be the narrator? I have no idea. What I do know is that he does narrate. And the movie is about what happens in the future when all drugs and alcohol are against the law and nobody breaks the law. There are no drugs and alcohol in the country. None. It's not prohibition where there's a black market for it. There's nothing. But one day a year, 12 hours of that day, guess what? You get to use all the drugs that have been confiscated. You get to binge. And it's a government-sanctioned event. There's no arrest. There's no nothing. Many people die because they overdose. Many people party their socks off. Many people lock themselves in their homes. But it's the binge. This movie's about a bunch of kids and what they do in their first binge because you have to be 18. The movie is fine. That's all it is. But what makes it is there's a musical number in the middle of a movie when the bingers are on magic mushrooms. They are tripping. And what do you do in the movies when you're tripping? Of course, you sing and you dance. Have you ever seen in movies when people drink absinthe? Like there was a movie, Alfie, where Susan Sarandon and Jude Law drank absinthe. Moulin Rouge, when they were taking absinthe, it results in creative singing and dancing. And I bought into it because I love singing and dancing. I bought it. And what I realized is that we were listening to an original song created by this writer. It was called Higher, as in Higher, as in, yeah, yeah, Higher. Written by Jordan Vandina, who also wrote The Binge. Phenomenal writer. A lot of amazing Dialogue, a lot of great lyrics. I think the song could get nominated. That would be something, wouldn't it? Check out The Binge. It is a perfect distraction. In a sea of bad news, it brought a smile to my face. Okay, nothing personal pick of the day. We're 11 and 9. The Rays beat the Marlins on Friday, in case you didn't remember, but they did. Here's who wins tonight. The Padres beat the Rockies 13-2. to The Padres are going to win again. The team who does the most on a trade deadline, this is totally anecdotal. This has nothing to do with reality. This is just in my head. When your team sells, your team stinks, and your team loses the night of the trade deadline. When your team may be a seller, but you choose not to sell, and the clubhouse is all excited, your team wins the night after the deadline. When your team's a buyer and you don't buy, your team loses the day after the deadline. When your team's a buyer and they do buy, your team's a winner. Padres over the Rockies. Padres will win going for three over 500. Okay. We got to talk a little Yankees as we promised we would. What a crazy weekend for the New York uh, New York Yankees. We said that they had a five-game series against the Mets. The Mets swept them in the first two games on Friday. Then the Yankees came back and swept the Mets on Sunday. But they did it in a way that I don't actually recall seeing. I'm sure I was a part of it over the thousands of games I was in baseball, but I just don't remember it. The Yankees were down to their final out in a seven-inning game because doubleheaders are seven innings. Have you ever been watching a game this season? Because this happened to me this weekend. Watching a game, I don't realize because I don't 
listen to the announcers because I have every game I watch on mute. And it's game one of a doubleheader or game two of a doubleheader. It's a seven-inning game, and I think it's a nine-inning game. And then all of a sudden, the seventh inning ends, and the game's over, and I'm, and I'm oh, my God, I forgot it was a doubleheader. Well, the Yankees had two outs in the seventh inning. All right, no problem. They're down five runs, not the end of the world. Oh, it's a doubleheader. They were one out away from losing, and the Yankees came back and scored five runs to tie and won the game in extra innings. Then they won the nightcap. Edwin Diaz has been horrible for the Mets. They keep putting him out there. Now, when you look at earned run average for a closer, don't. Because sometimes if closers come in and give up the save, they may not let any runners score who are their own. They just give up runs for other guys in the bullpen. That was always a source of great consternation and fighting in the clubhouse. You may not realize this, but pitchers get paid according to ERA. There is nothing worse when a pitcher gets an inflated ERA because the manager did not trust him to get an additional out, brings in another pitcher, that pitcher gives up the hit, and you end up with a higher ERA because of it. Edwin Diaz, since joining the Mets, has 10 blown saves with an ERA at almost six in save situations. Just horrible. But I'm not here to talk about the Mets anymore. We've said it time and time again that that trade was bad. We're talking about the Yankees because Brian Cashman, for the first time that I can remember, he's the one who is the GM of the Yankees. He's been around. He's a Hall of Fame baseball executive. He has survived the Steinbrenner gauntlet in a way no other executive has ever. He's won rings. He's built teams. He signed free agents. He's taught the Steinbrenner family to stay with your young players and supplement those players with free agents. He is professional. He is charitable. He is caring. He did something this weekend that is so out of character that I know this didn't come from him. And here's what it is. Do you remember the story that I told you about Jay Happ? Jay Happ is the pitcher for the Yankees. Jay Happ is the pitcher who has a vesting option of $17 million in 2021. What a vesting option means is that if he, Jay Happ, starts a certain number of games or gets a certain number of innings pitched, then his salary in 2021 becomes guaranteed at $17 million. And I told you that if I were in that position, I would make sure that Jay Happ did not get those starts or those innings pitched, period. We are not going to let Jay Happ vest. And then I told you the story of how when the season became 60 games and there was an agreement with the players union over what would happen to vesting options, because obviously if you need 30 starts to vest your option in a normal season, you're not going to get 30 starts in the 60 game series. So that would be prorated down to let's say 10 starts. But there were a few players where the union and the commissioner's office owners could not agree what the new level of the vesting option would be. So Jay Happ is one of those players. So we don't know what is required for Jay Happ's $17 million option to vest. 
We do know that if it's prorated, it would be around 10 starts. Let's say around 60 innings. And we know the Yankees were never going to let it happen. So Jay Happ has not had an opportunity to start a lot of games. I think he started Coca three or four this year, and that's it. He's been skipped over time and time again. He has no chance to get 10 starts. And Jay Happ has been horrible. Conveniently horrible for the Yankees. Thankfully horrible for the Yankees. But Brian Cashman did not leave it alone because Jay Happ has been loud and obvious about his frustration with the Yankees for playing around with his option. And I get that that's happened, and he's right. But Brian Cashman finally answered it this weekend when he said, hey, Jay Happ didn't have a good season last year. It was poor last year, and he's not been successful this year, even though he had just thrown seven shutout innings a few days ago. It was his first appearance since August 5th. Cashman said, we're certainly hopefully can step up and pitch well for us and help us win a game, but this is baseball. You get a chance to play more with positive performance and you get the chance to play less with negative performance. It's as simple as that. We're not trying to complicate anything. Our job is to try to win baseball games, Cashman said, and put the best players out there on the field under those circumstances. Nothing more, nothing less. Brian Cashman, you are full of it. Why? Why would you choose this time to go after your player and to talk about an issue where you know you're not being truthful? You know that you're not pitching J-Hat because of the vesting option. You know you don't want a grievance, so you know you can't say it, but on nothing personal, I can and I will. J-Hat could have been a Cy Young candidate this year and will never know because the Yankees were not going to give him the right number of starts because they were not going to let his option vest. Why? Say it with me. Come on. One time. Yeah. Because it's business. Sorry, Jay. Nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.